Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community will be celebrating the 125th birthday of Zora Neale Hurston in April 2016 with a Caribbean cruise. We are planning for a cruise April 10th through the 17th, where we follow the research footsteps uh, in the Caribbean. Uh, going to Haiti and Jamaica. We'll discuss airplanes leaving Miami to import alcohol from the Bahamas during Prohibition. So in 1919, the 18th Amendment was ratified and it was put into effect in 1920, which made illegal the production and sale of alcohol in the United States, which of course included Florida. Uh, but a unforeseen consequence was the rise in illegal activity to bring that alcohol into the United States. And we'll talk about 19th century immigration. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Writer, folklorist, and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston featured the town of Eatonville prominently in her work. Growing up in the oldest incorporated African-American municipality in the United States greatly influenced Hurston's novels and nonfiction work. Hurston also traveled the Caribbean gathering folk tales and oral histories. 2016 marks the 125th birthday of Zora Neale Hurston. Such a milestone provides the opportunity to reflect on Hurston's impact in a unique way. N.Y. Nathiri is director of multidisciplinary programs for the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community and founding director of the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. It is an opportunity to expand uh, the programming that 
generally happens with us at least. Uh, many people may know us as the presenter of the annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities, and our festivals each year revolve around a theme. And this year, January 23 through 31, uh, will be in some ways the same as usual in that it revolves around a theme. But this year, the theme being the commemoration of Zora Neale Hurston's 125th birthday, the kickoff event, we like to say it's going to be everything Zora Neale Hurston all the time from every different way that we can present. And so that will be the case. But also, uh, because we are looking at this as a year-long commemorative um, exercise, uh, we are planning for a cruise April 10th through the 17th, where we follow the research footsteps uh, in the Caribbean, uh, going to Haiti and Jamaica, um, and really uh, using uh, the opportunity to bring people together who are really interested in looking a little bit more in depth of the impact of Zora Neale Hurston, specifically as a, as a folklorist. It is an opportunity to um, have fun, uh, to enjoy the, all of the amenities of, of the cruise experience, as well as the opportunity to, to talk and to uh, discover uh, perhaps information and insights that ordinarily you would not if you were on land. So for us, this is a very uh, nice opportunity to combine what I would call serious public humanities programming with uh, the best of leisure time activity. While Zora Neale Hurston did much of her writing about Eatonville and Florida, she also did folklore research in Jamaica, Haiti, and New Orleans. The 125th birthday celebration cruise will allow passengers to follow in Hurston's Caribbean footsteps. Of course, we have to be prepared. You know, there's always homework. There are three books that we are encouraging our passengers to read and be prepared to discuss. Of course, Tell My Horse, which is one of the two folklore compilations that she put together. Tell My Horse concentrates on Haiti and on Jamaica. Uh, we are expecting to discuss in a superficial way of uh, uh, voodoo and uh, how it was, how she documented it. And so Tell My Horse is one of the three books that we want people to read and, and to uh, be ready to discuss as they would. In addition, the second um, collection, Mules and Men, really looks at Eatonville, at the rural South, at the um, New Orleans experience, and then, of course, her classic, Their Eyes Are Watching God. So uh, as we are preparing, and of course, this is a year out, and um, plenty of time to, to read several times, as a matter of fact, of uh, this work. But that will be a part of our, let's say, our more serious um, uh, opportunity for delving into the work of Zora Neale Hurston. Uh, we will, uh, at Haiti, we will uh, go off ship. I think it's, off, uh, it's a port of call. And there will be a separate uh, day-long experience in Haiti and as well in, in Jamaica, so that people will have an opportunity to experience some of the um, uh, some of that culture on on the ground, as it were. 
Of course, uh, in addition, we are organizing a syllabus, so to speak, or a curriculum, if you would, that allows us to, as I say, not only enjoy the amenities of the Freedom of the Seas um, uh, cruise liner, but also to be able to to talk with uh, scholars such as Dr. Ruth Sheffy, who is our elder scholar. Uh, it was Dr. Sheffy who established the first Zora Neale Hurston Society on an American campus. Uh, I'm pleased to say that you, uh, Dr. Ben Broke-Markle, uh, will be one of our public uh, uh, scholars and who will be leading uh, sessions at the beginning, midway, and at the end of the uh, cruise experience. Uh, we will also uh, do a Harlem Renaissance Night. Um, in addition, we are expecting to film at least one a documentary in which uh, Zora Neale Hurston uh, played a role. So you can see that, um, in a way of speaking, we are looking at this as an opportunity for people who like that continual learning uh, as they are as they are traveling. During her research, Hurston actually became a voodoo priestess to fully experience the culture. While the April 2016 cruise will provide personal learning opportunities and in-depth discussion, Anwina Theory says it will not be quite as immersive as Hurston's own experience. No, no, no. We, we, we say that, uh, that Zora Neale Hurston spared no sacrifice. In her research of voodoo, we, we're not going to, we, we will only uh, really look at, uh, how should I say, we, we will not delve into the depths of the, of the ritual. Tracy Moore of Robinson Cruise Planners Limited is organizing the Zora Neale Hurston 125th birthday cruise. Moore says Royal Caribbean International's Freedom of the Seas offers a lot of amenities for passengers to enjoy. It has lots of features uh, like ice skating, rock climbing, um, great spa, fitness center. They actually have a mini golf course there, a basketball court, boxing ring, and a water park for the kids. The focus of the cruise will be Zora Neale Hurston and her work, and there will be private spaces on board just for the 125th birthday cruisers. We actually have a dedicated conference room area uh, that's away from all the other activities, so you can concentrate uh, basically on the sessions that will be in hell. But uh, it's uh, designated just for us, and a very nice and comfortable uh, conference room area. Uh, on the days that we are cruising, those are the days that we will be uh, using those uh, conference rooms. And of course, we have the two tours, so we'll be going out on our tour dates uh, in uh, Haiti and in Jamaica. But we also have several other places that we'll be visiting. We'll be visiting uh, Grand Cayman, uh, Georgetown, and Cozumel, Mexico. Uh, we'll be suggesting things to do there as well. But we have special tours, especially for Haiti and especially for Jamaica for our group. Uh, there'll be private tours and uh, you'll gather and gain information that uh, no one else will probably know about on the ship but you by the time you come back from this tour. Uh, both tours, as a matter of fact. But there are extra days there for you to enjoy your time in Grand Cayman and also in Mexico. And then we have a cruising day as we return back to Port Canaveral and we'll have some wrap-up sessions on that day. So uh, we'll have some fun activities going on, Harlem nights, um, just things during the week that we know will be fun for everyone. 
Tracy Moore says that the cost to attend the Zora Neale Hurston birthday celebration cruise includes accommodations on the ship, food and beverages, exclusive tours and activities, and more. On this particular uh, event, this fundraising event for PEC, of course, it's an all-inclusive package. So uh, what you're getting with this is uh, an opportunity to choose from an interior cabin, an ocean view cabin, or a balcony cabin. And the all-inclusive prices, uh, of course, includes all the activities that you'll be doing on the ship that's associated with the Zora sessions and all the Zora special private events. And of course, it includes uh, the tours as well, the one in Haiti and the one in Jamaica. So uh, when you go to uh, our call, uh, Robinson Cruise Planners, in regards to that, you'll be getting uh, the cost that will be inclusive uh, of the port charges, the taxes, the events, the tours. So we're excited to just give you a one all-inclusive package on this uh, special event. In addition to having a great time and an educational experience, participants in the Hurston Birthday Cruise will be helping to support the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community and the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. NY Nathiri. This is a fundraiser uh, for us, and so if you really feel it's important to support these kinds of initiatives, the mission of the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community, it's a way that you as an individual can enjoy yourself as well as to make a, a contribution. And so for us, um, it's very important. To book your cabin aboard the Zora Neale Hurston 125th birthday cruise, April 10th through 17th, 2016, call Tracy Moore at 1-866-632-8724 or email her at rcptm at bellsouth.net. That's 1-866-632-8724 or rcptm at bellsouth.net. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to watch original video, listen to archived editions of this program, find great books on Florida history and culture, and much more. If you click on the Join Now button, you can receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. Of all the crimes
selling whiskey is the greatest sin. It caused more misery, pain, and woe than any other crime I know. So get out of the way, whiskey seller, for you ruin a many of a clever feller. During Prohibition, pilots would leave Miami to pick up illegal liquor in the Bahamas. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, before we talk about airplanes and Prohibition, there's a long tradition of flight in Florida. Yeah, that's right. And when we look at Florida history and the history of transportation, just like the railroads replaced the steamboat, the airplane slowly started to replace the uh, railroad as the primary means of commercial transportation. It was so much easier for people to travel via airplane as the technology progressed into the 20th century, and it also became uh, quite a bit cheaper. Uh, Shortly after the Wright brothers made their historic flight uh, in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, uh, designers from all over the world were beginning to test out uh, this new technology. And as early as 1905, uh, there were uh, long-range test flights that were being conducted on uh, Florida's uh, coastal regions, on the east coast of Florida, uh, near present-day Daytona Beach, which you now think of as the birthplace of speed. A number of early test flights were conducted, and uh, again, people would travel from all over the world and bring their designs to uh, take off and land on the flat, sandy beaches of Daytona and Ormond Beach. Uh, As we uh, progress further into the 20th century with the beginning of the uh, First World War and the uh, U.S. involvement in the First World War, as airplane technology progressed, we see more and more training bases spring up. In fact, one of the first naval air stations uh, was started in, in Pensacola and it still operates today. So we see the, the technology uh, getting better and better. Airplanes are becoming faster and faster. Uh, and more and more civilians, after the end of the First World War, more and more civilians are getting their pilot's licenses. Many of them never even had a license, but they wanted to learn how to fly. And they were coming to Florida uh, to enjoy the, uh, the warm weather and also experiment with float planes and different types of technologies. Now, during Prohibition, some pilots flew airplanes to the Bahamas to illegally bring back liquor to Florida. And, of course, flying alcohol into Florida during Prohibition was was illegal. And not all of these uh, runs were successful. Yeah, that's right. So in 1919, the uh, 18th Amendment was ratified and it was put into effect in 1920, which made illegal the production and sale of alcohol in the United States, which of course included Florida. Uh, but a unforeseen consequence was the rise in illegal activity to bring that alcohol into the United States. Uh, and early on, a number of entrepreneurs, if you will, uh, started running rum from the Bahamas into Florida with uh, boats. They were using sailing ships and uh, would later use fast uh, gas-powered cutters, Uh, but a few of these young uh, pilots decided that the fastest way to get this uh, liquor into the United States was to fly it. Uh, So often they would leave from uh, South Florida, uh, mainly around Miami, Biscayne Bay area, Fort Lauderdale, and fly to West End, which is on the Grand Bahama Island. It it was kind of a known production center for uh, mostly rum, but other liquors as well. They would then fly these small batches back to Florida and hope they didn't get caught. Now, uh, you're right. uh, Oftentimes these short runs would, would end in disaster. Either the planes would experience some kind of technical malfunction, uh, or they were caught by uh, revenuers or the Coast Guard would would catch some of these gentlemen uh, when they were departing or coming back. Uh, So it was a treacherous journey. But we have to understand the times, uh, you know, this is right in the middle of the Great Depression. So a lot of these uh, young people, both men and women, uh, were coming to Florida and they were trying to uh, make enough money really to survive, but they also wanted to fly. So if someone 
offered you $80 rather than the $8 you were getting for to fly tourists around. They gave you $80 cash to run a few cases of liquor from the West End and, and uh, really only expend a couple of hours of your time. For many, the, the risk was, uh, was worth the reward. Uh, but again, often these gentlemen uh, didn't make it back and, and they would uh, be lost somewhere in the Gulf Stream. Um, so it was it, certainly there was a tremendous amount of risk, but uh, if you could make a few runs, you could buy your own airplane and start running your own commercial service. So there was a lot of incentive for these people uh, during the Great Depression. Well, what happened to these pilots after booze became legal again? The amendment was uh, uh, appealed in, in 1933. Prohibition ended, and it, it again became legal to distill and sell liquor in the United States. So a number of these men kind of just faded into the, the pages of history. Uh, but very few of them uh, kept flying. Uh, some of them would go on to fly uh, warplanes during the Second World War, and they would uh, be officially trained by the U.S. government. Uh, but many of them just kind of forgot about their their young, their youthful exploits when flying. Uh, but what we're actually looking at today, an interesting document is a collection, a manuscript that was written by one of these pilots who went on to to work in other businesses around Miami and, and essentially stopped flying. But when he was in his early 20s, he and a, a small group of his high school buddies started running uh, booze back and forth from the West End to, uh, to Miami. They were flying actually from Glenn Curtis Field. Um, and what they would do is uh, when the uh, there were annual air races that were held in Miami. So uh, a lot of these people would come down from all over the country to Miami. And, and there were a lot of people who were interested in, in partaking in, in libations. So in order to get it, they would contact, they would hire these young pilots who were competing in the races. Uh, and they would actually give them an, uh, more money if they could fly it faster. So it became a race in and of itself uh, to bring the liquor back as fast as you could. Uh, but the gentleman we're looking at today are the manuscript we're looking at today was written by Bert Ewing. Again, he went on to uh, be involved in different businesses around Miami, but right around 1960, he decided to uh, put the pen to paper and write down some of these memories. So we have a, a great collection. This is the original handwritten manuscript that he produced in the early 1960s that describes his uh, summer of, of 1928 uh, when he and his buddies flew back and forth. And uh, a few of them ditched in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, both of whom that he describes were, were eventually rescued. Uh, one actually floated in a raft with a, a few supplies, but also all of the uh, the rum that he was trying to get back. He managed to rescue that from the wreckage, was picked up and, and uh, arrested by the Coast Guard shortly after. Uh, but it's a really colorful part of Florida's history that uh, is essentially forgotten today. Great. Well, thanks a lot, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. It causes the children's bitter cries And the tears to gush from the mother's eyes It causes them to cry for bread As hungry they are than to bed So get out of the way, you whiskey seller For you ruin a many of a clever color This is Florida Frontiers. Florida is one of the most diverse states in the nation and always has been. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has this look at 19th century immigration. In the big story of the new immigration to America from 1880 to 1915, Florida is a, a small tadpole in the, in, the, in the big pond, as they say. Um, first of all, Florida, you, you have to appreciate Florida is part of the Deep South. Why would immigrants want to come to the Deep South? Uh, First, there's not much industry here. Second, they're competing against African Americans at, at the, the very bottom of the, the 
the, of the social economic ladder. Uh, and thirdly, they're not terribly welcome at all uh, because of religion and, and politics and these things. That was Dr. Gary Mormino, Professor Emeritus at the University of South Florida at St. Petersburg. I sat down with him recently to talk about immigration to Florida. He told me about the city of Key West as the first destination for immigrants soon after the Civil War. If you look at Florida compared to the rest of the South, except for Louisiana, Florida is an, an exception. Uh, it, it doesn't rival any northern state in terms of sheer numbers, but compared to the South, more immigrants came to Florida than most southern states. You, you did have some classic immigration communities, uh, Key West most notably in the beginning in 1868, attracted a, a, a huge Cuban community, uh, so much so that, that Key West by, I think, the 1870s, 1880s is second and even at one time largest community in Florida, largely because of the Cuban immigrants. There's a Gattoville there because of Eduardo Gatto in his cigar factory. Uh, people are calling Key West Cayo Hueso again. Key West soon declined as a destination, Dr. Mormino tells me where the immigrants from Key West eventually went. And many of those immigrants came to Tampa when uh, Don Vicente Martinez Ibor creates his cigar empire, Ibor City, in 1886. What, what's unusual about Ibor City is it, it was larger than the immigrant enclave in, in, in Key West, but also more interesting. It, it had four distinct groups. It had Spaniards. The, the Spaniards were from Asturias and Galicia. You had Cubans, black and white Cubans. Uh, Cubans were the most numerous group. But the, you also had Italians, uh, principally Sicilians. And they, were, they called themselves Latins, uh, not Hispanic. Hispanic is a very modern kind of post-1960s term. So Ybor City, in some ways, is a classic immigrant community. The Cubans, Spanish, and Italians might have come to Florida in the largest numbers, but Dr. Marino reminds us they were not the only groups that came. One of the big differences, though, in Florida, and this would be true of the rest of the South, is immigrant groups here never had to compete with previous established immigrant groups. For instance, when the Puerto Ricans came to New York in the 1940s, they're colliding with Italians who had collided against Jews, who had who had fought Germans and Irish, so you have these stratified patterns there. But in Tampa, there's really no one there. In fact, Tampa Tribune, I think in 1896, said, we're probably the only community in America that's not celebrating St. Patrick's Day. There's really no Irish here. You, you had some other immigrant communities. The, the Greek enclave in Tarpon Springs is established in 1905. What's exotic about Tarpon Springs is that they're sponge fishermen and they go down with the weighted diving helmets. You had some smaller enclaves in Florida, Slavia, uh, I think in Seminole County, and, and um, I think Oviedo had, had some Slovaks there as well. I interviewed Dr. Gary Mormino and others for the podcast series, A History of Central Florida. You can find it on iTunes. I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the daily conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. 
I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.